Welcome to the Daily Business Hustle Podcast. My name is Alexander Vitkin. I'm the creator and founder of the Daily Business Hustle. On this podcast, I share with you my top unbiased business advice, sales advice, and I talk to the world's top experts in their fields related to business. Hey, it's Alex here, and I'm here with Tim Bitchell, and he's a world-famous expert on procrastination. He's been doing it for 22 years. He's the author of Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, which you can find on Amazon, and you can find his website on procrastination.ca, so that's not .com. And he's the Associate Professor of Psychology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. So you could say that he's at the forefront of uh, the science of procrastination. So welcome, welcome to this uh, YouTube video, Tim. Thanks, Alex. So I, I guess we'll focus on entrepreneurs and how entrepreneurs can use uh, all the research and all the awesome tips that you have. So entrepreneurs, they're really focused on learning new difficult skills. So in the beginning, it's not like something where you just learn something relatively simple, implement it, and you'll get results guaranteed. Uh, I found for me, for people that I work with, it's very, very important to know how to learn difficult skills and beat procrastination. So I guess you talk a lot about students because, well, obviously you're a professor, associate professor. And would you say that students and entrepreneurs should take the same approach to solving the procrastination puzzle? In the most part, yes. I think we, we can come back and put some nuances on entrepreneurs, which makes them a little different. But there's a lot of similarities. And the basic similarity is that as human beings, we experience lots of emotions. And if we experience negative emotions, we don't want to have them. And so if I face a task that I'm frustrated by or I'm bored by or I'm actually a little fearful of or um, uncertain, then I don't want to have those emotions. I'd like to feel good now. So what can I do to do get rid of those emotions? Well, I can avoid the task because it's the task that's making me feel that way. And so I run away. I'll say, oh, I'll feel more like doing this tomorrow. If you think about what people say or think before they procrastinate, and my children taught me this so clearly, I don't want to, I don't feel like it. And really, you have to get past that. You have to understand it's not about what you want to do or what you feel like doing. If you wait until you feel like doing something, you're going to wait an awful long time. We also know that, just as social psychologists demonstrated that attitudes follow behaviors, feelings follow behaviors too. Once you get doing it changes your feelings and your perceptions. So it's really about overcoming that resistance and whether it's students or entrepreneurs, to go back to your question, lots of similarities. Okay. Yeah, it sounds really familiar. Like, I don't think anyone's ever wanted to learn or felt like learning sales, especially in the moment, because it's something very scary to learn. Um, and there's many more skills like that. How would you approach learning like really scary, scary little uh, things or building really scary mm. habits like public speaking, for example. It's funny you mentioned sales because I get quite a few salespeople contacting me. Like I've worked with all sorts of professionals, um, lawyers and, and uh, well, every profession really. I can't think of a group of people that haven't said to me, oh, in our area we procrastinate a lot. It's kind of the human condition. But sales is very interesting because you have, amongst other things, something called the cold call. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes the hardest. So, you know, you've got to make this call, 
But deep down, you have these negative emotions attached with it. We're not even always conscious of them. We just feel like every time we go to reach for the phone, our hand goes away like it's a, a neg- negative part of a magnet, or the, and, and, and the phone is too. It's just repelling, you know, that like poles repel in magnetism. And we, we don't get it. Like we think, I need to make the call, and you'll do anything but. And so that's really a profound point where lots of salespeople procrastinate on that cold call. Now, you asked about learning skills, but really the same thing happens no matter what. If I'm having negative emotions, what I have to recognize is that my avoidance is being rewarded by getting rid of that negative stimulus. This is like behaviorism 101. Uh, Way back when, when Skinner and behaviorism really ruled psychology, we learned about something called negative reinforcement. And that is, if, uh, if it's raining outside, we put an umbrella up, that behavior gets reinforced because we get rid of the negative stimulus. We get rid of getting wet. Mm-hmm. And so if I avoid the call, I, I get rewarded in the instant by getting rid of the negative emotions. Now, unfortunately, unlike the umbrella, which just keeps us dry, avoiding the call comes back to bite us. So I'm avoiding the call and I'm getting rewarded, but it's only a short-term reward. In the long term, I get punished. So people always ask me, why do I keep putting it off? Well, because that short-term reward is very powerful. Uh, There's something about the human being, and we can try to speculate about what our ancestors were like to make this the condition, but it seems that we don't like to delay gratification. We want to feel good now. So with entrepreneurs and sales and learning difficult skills, we all recognize this takes effort. Oh, gee, this is hard, and I don't feel like it. Honestly, it's like a six-year-old alive and well in us. I don't feel like it. I don't want to. So we have to learn to get past that and realize it's not about feeling like it. But then that's that point, that point in time, we have to learn to get past that resistance. And that's what's crucial. That's what all your listeners are probably interested in knowing. That's where we're similar to students in the sense that when we're facing an assignment or studying for an exam or learning new lab skills, just like learning your sales skills. It's hard work, and we're adverse to that hard work. If I said to you, well, okay, we're going to go to boot camp, and even that that notion uh, evokes a great deal in us. Boot camp, oh, geez, that's hard. Yeah, yeah, you're going to really sweat hard. You're going to run. You're going to do too many push-ups. You're going to ache. You're thinking, oh, I don't want to do that. So you, that immediate reluct- resistance and reluctance is what leads to avoidance and procrastination. That's the a key message here. But I'll send it back to you to see if that answered your question or if you want to go at it a different way. Um, so would you say that it's a good idea to send them off into the deep end? Because with sales, as you mentioned, there is the cold call. There is also other types of sales where people come to you and it's much easier in my opinion at least. So would you say that someone should start easy or start hard? Hmm. Well, I wouldn't throw anybody in the deep end because – then if you're feeling overwhelmed, then you're going to want to avoid. The best thing we can do for entrepreneurs who are, are novices and looking for mentorship or students who are looking for mentorship from a, a faculty member is to scaffold their success because success on and progress fuels our well-being. Mm-hmm. And that confidence and that well-being fuels our motivation. But if we're feeling defeated and we're feeling like we don't have the skills, that's when we're most likely to give up. Now, there are some individual differences here. There are some people who like to be not 
coddled very much and thrown in the deep end. But for the most part, that's just a certain bravado that we typically use. Most of us like to have a sense of challenge that's within our, our ability level. And otherwise, then we start feeling like an imposter. We feel like we're going to fail. That fear of failure can really lead to putting things off. So no, I wouldn't throw many people in the deep end. You know what? The other thing about that is, even when you feel like you're not throwing in the deep end, they can often feel that way because you've forgotten what it's like to be brand new. Mm-hmm. And so, and I face this as a faculty member all the time, and or whatever you teach at. You know, years and years ago, I taught tennis for hours and hours at a time, and I taught some whitewater canoeing. And I can remember what I would think would be an easy stroke on the tennis court or an easy turn on a river was overwhelming to students, and we can forget that. So they already feel like they're in the deep end. Yeah, so I'm not keen on that. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely the opposite of the approach that uh, <laughs> we oftentimes <laughs> take. Um, do you think there's like a good form of procrastination, or can procrastination be a good thing? No, it's plain and simple. No, there's many forms of delay. Like I might have co- contacted you today and say, "Look, I have to delay our podcast, Alec." And in fact, we did in the fall, and it was purposeful delay. It was a necessary delay. And whenever I think about entrepreneurship, I also think of creativity because that's one part that really defines an entrepreneur. You're you're coming with a new idea to solve an existing problem or even a problem people don't even recognize yet. And so some people will say, oh, well, you know, my procrastination feeds my creativity. No, 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 no. Your procrastination feeds your emotional avoidance. Delay can sometimes feed your creativity. In other words, you can delay acting while you think more. So we, we can benefit from all sorts of kinds of delay. Delay that's purposeful, delay that's inevitable, uh, but not the kind of irrational delay that defines procrastination. Procrastination is when you know it's time to act and you're not acting and the only thing that's standing in the way is you. And how we define it in the research literature is that procrastination is a voluntary delay of an intention or an intended act. So we're actually intending to do something. So it might be to make that cold call or to work on this new skill development. But it's voluntary in the sense that no one's stopping us. It's not even like situational. Where, for example, if the school called me right now and said, your son or your daughter's sick, I'd have to say, bye, Alec, I have to go. Now, you wouldn't call me a procrastinator for that. We'd say we're delaying because you've got something else that's a priority. But with procrastination, it's a voluntary delay of an intended act. And the key thing here is that all things considered, we, we know we're going to be worse off for the delay. Now, the world's not a perfect place. You might not be worse off for the delay. And every once in a while, procrastination can pay off. And we hold on to that like gold to justify the future procrastination. But I'll go back to answering your question directly. No, procrastination's never a good thing. It's the negative form, an irrational form of delay. And we've just finished some research that debunks the notion of active procrastination, for example. I've had some colleagues try to define a a positive form of procrastination. And other colleagues and I recognize it as an oxymoron. That's not procrastination. That's really a, a wise delay. So, long and short of it again, no, procrastination always uh, comes back to bite us. And that's why most people are interested in decreasing it. But because self-deception reigns large in our lives, 
we want to somehow believe that, oh no, it could feed our creativity, for example. No, it doesn't feed our creativity. Uh, delay can feed our creativity in important ways. But if you're really procrastinating, most of the time what you spend your mental headspace on in is in guilt and worry and all sorts of negative things because you think, oh, I should be working on it, I'm not working on it. Again, once in a while it pays off, but it's not the best way to live your life. Hmm. Here's a weird question. Did you implement or like uh, use some of the findings from all this research and from the, all these years of experience in your own life? Did you optimize your own life to <laughs> avoid all procrastination? Absolutely. Like people often ask me, do you procrastinate? I have to say no, very rarely. Now, I'm not perfect. So there are times when I face things that make me want to delay. In fact, I admitted to some colleagues the other day that I procrastinated on a task, but it was tiny and it was, it's the exception, not the rule. Did I procrastinate earlier in my life? Absolutely. I mean, that's what interested me in the topic too, like everyone. But it's not so much that I got into the topic to study myself. In fact, I did my PhD on goal pursuit. So I was looking at how people pursued their goals and how it related to their well-being. But as I listened to people's stories about the goal pursuit and the effects on well-being, I realized that a lot of the story was in what they said they were going to do and never did. And that's why in 1995, when I finished my own PhD, I turned the corner, or turned the page, you could say, and went from studying what people were doing, their goals, to, people, well, to what people said they were going to do and never did. Now, back to your question. Do I use the strategies? Every day. Almost every minute some days. Because I'm just like anybody else, and I can think, I don't feel like it. I don't want to. And then I have, but for me now, I have no wiggle room. Like, I can't believe that. Even my children laugh because they'll say that and they know it doesn't cut any grass with me. I say, I didn't ask you what you feel like. I didn't ask you what you want to do. It's time to do the dishes or it's time to move the snow or whatever it might be. And so it's the same in my own life. But I have other strategies. For example, I really hate writing letters of reference. And I have to write quite a few of them, as you might imagine. They're difficult because they're high stakes for the person I'm writing for. I have to be specific about what I say. Uh, it can't just be broad motherhood statements. And all of that matters. So I'll look at a letter and go, oh, no, I'd rather do something else right now. And I think, well, what would be the next action if I was going to write the letter, but I'm not going to? So this is where I'm tricking myself. I'm saying to myself, I'm not going to. I'm trying to lower my feelings. But I'm still on task because I'm saying, what would be the next action? Well, you'd have to open up that email from the student and see to whom the letter, who the letter's for. I could do that. Little action. I could do that. And so I do it. Okay, what would be the next action if I was going to write this letter, but I'm not? Well, I'd have to open up a blank piece of letterhead. Oh, for goodness sakes, I could do that. Well, what would be the next action if I was going to do that? Well, I'd have to put in the, the address to whom this letter is being, is being sent. I can do that. I can just have to copy, copy and paste it. And do you see where I'm going? Mm -hmm. There are days when I have to bootstrap my success one baby step at a time. But the thing is, it works. <laughs> and and it, it's magical in its own way. Because a few minutes later, I'm on task. And as I learned in my research years ago, and I'm talking nearly 20 years ago, when we put pagers on students and followed them around, that we create these really negative images of our tasks. And then once we get started, we go, this isn't so bad. Why did I wait so long? If I had gotten started earlier, I could do a better job. And I know that in my heart of hearts. 
And I also know from our research that I'm not going to feel more like it tomorrow. But that's an interesting story in itself. Why do we think we'll feel more like it tomorrow? But back to the answering your question directly, I use all of the strategies that I write about that's come out of our research every day. And in a sense, you can say, I have the most beautiful toolbox of anti-procrastination strategies. And so I like, I'm like a craftsman. Uh, if you ever watch someone who's like a woodworker, you know, they'll have a chisel for this or an awl for that. I've got a whole toolbox and I recognize that not everything is a nail and not everything needs a hammer. So I have a lot of different strategies that I use throughout the day. So the things I do in the morning are different than the things I do in the evening. In the evening, I'm running low on energy mm-hmm. and I, it's easier. In a sense, I could tell you that's my worst self. My better self was in earlier in the day. But better self actually committed, uh, not not better self, worse self, uh, poorer self, to action. So I've already set myself up for success there too. So again, a long story, but absolutely, I use the strategies very uh, carefully throughout the day to be successful. Uh, do you plan out your days uh, very carefully or is it not too planned out? Oh, I plan them out really carefully, and I I do two things. If you looked at my calendar, I color code all of the various activities I have, whether that be exercise and, and recreation to uh, my children, to research, teaching, administration, uh, household tasks. And one of the reasons I do that is that I can, at a glance, do an audit of my week because one of my most precious resources in my life is time, and that's true of you too. Uh, that's the only resource you can't get more of. You can make more money, but you can't make more time. So I'm very careful to keep track of my time. But that's the forensic audit. Now, ahead of time, I do plan, but my plans I'm willing to be flexible with, not um, cavalier about. I won't just move something and say, oh, I'm not procrastinating when I really am. But there is such a thing as an intention update. Like I intended to do this now, but something's just come up. Like this morning, I got an email from my dean saying, I need these things tomorrow morning. Well, something had to shift in my day to make that happen because I could see that's a priority. So I plan carefully, but I remain flexible. But I also remain true to my goals for the day. Uh, And that's really important too. The night before, I'm looking at what are my top two or three things for tomorrow. And I try to get those done first and get those done early. So I build in that success. Okay. Uh, do you have every minute of the day planned? Or is it just like in the calendar, but there's like wiggle room in there? That's a very interesting question. Alec. I do plan in kind of 15-minute blocks. And I probably have every minute of my day planned. But then I build in time for me, though, too. Like if you looked at my calendar, you'd see that I planned in uh, some cross-country skiing or time for yoga. Um, But because I have two fairly young children, I live out in the country on a small farm, and I have a very busy job, I have to stay very much planned and goal-oriented. But I don't just fill it up with things. um, I I always make sure I fill it up with things that feed me, too. Like it's a balanced portfolio. And yeah, that's the best way to think of it. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I pretty much plan out every day because I'm very goal-oriented. Uh, 
Is there no wiggle room? Hmm. That might just be an outcome of being a busy parent, right? That there's very little wiggle room. Lots of uh, contingent responsibilities. Uh, but every day comes with some wiggle room. Let's put it that way. Uh, it, you know, nothing ever comes exactly like you expect. Nothing. At any given day. Um, when I woke up this morning, for example, an interview that I had planned for 3.30, they asked if they could move it to 2.30. Well, that was actually a great thing. Uh, it took some pressure off. So I never know uh, exactly what's going to happen the next day, but to the best of my ability, I plan. And I'd like to lay on top of that something really crucial because we can stay at the level that seems kind of trivial, which is the planning. But underlying all of this is a sense of agency, Alex. And this sense of agency is profoundly important in, t in discussion of procrastination. By agency, I mean, I know this is my life. And my question every day is, what am I going to make of my life today? It's some people put it as, if this was the last day of your life, what would you do today? And implicitly, that's how I live my life. I say, this is my life. What am I going to do today? And so if you took, you know, that forensic audit of my life, I try to make every day a balanced portfolio of things that really represent my values and what I want to accomplish in my life. And that's a sense of agency. It's my life. What am I going to do with it? And so for your listeners who are entrepreneurs and who have big dreams and hopes and desires to creating their own business, they have to really grapple with the sense of, yeah, and I can make that happen. This is my life. This is my sense of agency. And I think sometimes their procrastination is that they're running away from that sense of agency. But that's, I mean, that underlies this notion of how do I manage my time? I manage my time because it's a precious commodity. And I manage my time because I am the author of my life. And wh why do you say that they run away from their sense of agency? So wh why did I do that? That's ah, a very existential thing. It's called freedom and responsibility, right? So I realized that to accomplish these goals, I have to do certain things, and that is responsibility, but I, I'm free not to do those things. And it's, it's um, as the existentialist wrote, uh, geez, over a half a century ago, or longer, depending on which author you're drawing on, it can lead us into real despair and anguish, that realizing that it's up to me. Yeah, it's up to you. And, but that could be overwhelming for people. So what they do is they just avoid it. And uh, avoiding it makes them feel good in the short term. But as Jean-Paul Sartre might say, you're living in bad faith. Yet you're not being true to yourself. And so I think we avoid our sense of agency as a deeply existential issue of not getting on with our own life. Hmm. Okay. And how did you get started with this research? So... 22 years ago, I believe, right? Well, I gave you a little bit of that in the, answering one of the other questions that I didn't do a PhD in procrastination, although I procrastinated a fair bit in my PhD. Uh, I was studying people's goal pursuit. And it was when I was researching people's goal pursuit that I realized, gee, if I want to understand how people are feeling, I need to understand what they said they were going to do and don't do because that really upsets them. That undermines our well-being. In fact, many people ask me, so Tim, what are the costs of procrastination? Is it that you do worse in life? Well, performance is affected by procrastination, but you and I both know people who are terrible procrastinators who are high achievers. Some people are just smart or athletic and they can still succeed. But you talk to any of them and what really goes down the toilet is their sense of well-being. I meet A-plus students who go, 
I just hate myself. I always leave things to the last minute. I'm up half the night. I don't know why I do this to myself. I succeed, but I'm such a screw-up. And see, procrastination typically affects our well-being. And so that's when I turned the corner, as I said before, turned the page on my research and said, well, I think I'm going to stop studying people's goal pursuit in terms of what they're doing and start studying what they say they're going to do and don't do. And that, that's been fascinating for me because we become our own worst enemy. Interesting. So what's the main difference there between the, let's say, A student who says he's a procrastinator but performs you know, at an A level, let's say, and an F student who says, oh, I'm doing all right. So what's the difference? What's going on in their mind? And I know it's a very <laughs> broad question, actually. but It is. <laughs> it is. Well, sometimes it's just sheer intelligence. Like you can get some people who can pull it off. Right? And in fact, even this notion I, I talked in passing about active procrastination that a couple of scholars came up with, and I say is an oxymoron, they're active procrastinators, but basically people who said, you know what, I can pull it off at the last minute. And they recognized that they could. So I wouldn't call that procrastination. I'd just call that knowledgeable delay. I know myself. I know I can do it. I'm going to do it later. Uh, but whereas the procrastinator says, oh, I better get started early. And so let's say that this assignment is due Friday. They think, I better start Tuesday, all things considered. Tuesday comes and they go, I don't feel like it. I don't want to. Oh, I can certainly wait till tomorrow. That, that's a whole different attitude towards the task. And now they're falling in that slippery slope of procrastination. So that F student who procrastinates is one who's putting off doing his or her work and doesn't have the sheer ability to just pull it off at the last minute. Now, the other thing in there is that as we move up uh, in higher education, last-minute efforts become almost impossible. You don't write a thesis in a couple of days. Right? It requires ethics um, ethics approval and collecting data and analyzing data. It's a long process. And so that's why a lot of students, when they, if they're procrastinators, finally fail because they can't do all-nighters anymore. It's one thing to pull off a, an essay and do all right once in a while. It's another to really learn something. And I think that's true in business as well, of course, that businesses aren't just a good idea. Right? If, if good ideas made a business, we'd all be rich. Exactly, it's a yeah. good idea. Yeah, it's a good idea that then is executed. And that execution requires so many things to happen. And many of those things, as you acknowledge, are beyond your, your current skill set. And that requires really careful planning and learning. And uh, anywhere along that line, you could hit something where you're face-to-face with your uncertainty, your frustration, your fear, and then you could start procrastinating. And if you could just recognize that, oh, I'm giving in to feel good. I'm trying to cope with avoidance. But this is a really dead-end coping strategy. And then search out other coping strategies, more positive coping strategies, then you're going to win the battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what we like to do is we tell them, start today. Like, just do something today, but start today. And mm. we found that relatively uh, a relatively successful strategy. Just because they don't have the opportunity to say, oh, well, I didn't start the first day, and then you know the ball <laughs> starts rolling. Uh, would you say that's a good approach, or would you uh, suggest saying something else. Absolutely. 
Well, you know, I, you you said that you met me through a YouTube lec- a YouTube video. It was a lecture I gave to graduate students. In fact, I never thought it was going to end up on YouTube, to be honest with you. I just showed up at lunchtime one day to talk to a bunch of graduate students. but uh, And that led you to reading my book. And you'll know from my book that my personal mantra is just get started. Now, over the years, I've started to refine that a bit, drawing on some uh, very in, uh, clever and intelligent people in the productivity literature, like David Allen and his book, Getting Things Done. And David Allen coined this phrase of, what's the next action? And I really like that question. I ask it myself all the time. What's the next action? Because just get started sometimes has no flesh on the bones because you think, just get started on what? If I knew how to just get started, I wouldn't be procrastinating. So I, I, I go right down to the level of, so what's the next action? What would I have to do? And then I just do that. So, but I'm totally in agreement with you. It's all, all about get, taking action now, not just planning for tomorrow. The moment I think tomorrow, I know that I'm, I'm uh, doing the wrong thing. Hmm. What would you give as advice uh, to us right now? So we have a problem where a very young entrepreneur, he's never been like a very good student or anything like that, didn't even go to college. He's 19 years old. Now, he got into business, and within a matter of weeks, he started getting results, which is incredible. I mean, weeks to get results, for me, I, I was very impressed. But here, here's here's the interesting part. Then he vanished, <laughs> like completely vanished off the face of the, earth, uh, of the earth. It's already been three weeks, just haven't heard a thing. Complete, It's a ghost. So what would you advise us or him? Hmm. Well, you know, you can't fix another person. I mean, you're puzzled by his behavior, but you can't change him. Uh, you're trying to reach out to him and try to understand his behavior. So we can only speculate at this point. But, you know, that immediate success can lead one to believe, well, I can't maintain this. Like, I'm, your own success can create fear or that you're feeling like an imposter. Anything that leads to negative emotions might be something you want to escape. It could also be that, you know, it's one thing to have a good idea and want to be successful and be an entrepreneur. It's another to live up to the day-to-day obligations. Uh, we all know about the stories of startups and how people kind of live at work. And we know those stories because they're true. <laughs> you know, when you start a business, that business, it's like this. You, you're part of that. You, you live and sleep that business. And maybe it overwhelmed him. He thought, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. There's other parts of my life I want. And he just walked away from it. Any of those things can be true. But it, the only thing that you might be able to help him see is that uh, if, the, if he's having any of these feelings, these are normal feelings. To feel afraid, to feel overwhelmed, to resent the business owning you, uh, that's pretty normal. But running away is only one possible response. Is there a way for him, for example, if it's about not having time for himself to build that time in? If he's afraid that he's going to fail, then he has to challenge those and say, well, those thoughts and say, well, what would, what would failure be to you? And what would happen if you failed? And also to recognize that, gee, some of the most successful people fail over and over and over again. And that's why they're successful. So all those things could be true. But at this point, both you and I are speculating. So, do you think it's a good idea with guys like this, so that was one example, to, when they get started, to make them write, or encourage them to write, um, every detail of how they're going to organize these new habits in their lives? Do you think that's a good idea? 
Well, it's it's probably too much. Uh, I would I would look for something that Charles Duhigg uh, has written about. He Charles Duhigg has written a very good book on habits, and he talks about keystone habits. And I'd spend a lot of time with some, someone looking for those habits, which are called keystone habits, which when you establish those, have a lot of positive downstream effects. You know, in passing, I told you I did other things before I was a professor, and one of them that I did for a long time was coach tennis. And one of the things that happens when you spend a long time in any one sport is that you get to see things in a different way. I also run sled dogs. I know people who ride horses. I have horses. And in terms of sled dogs and horses, for example, you can watch their movement. And a person who's been around animals can really see movement, the gait, whether there's a limp. But what I'm getting at is that uh, when you're coaching somebody else, whether it be on the tennis court or, in your case, entrepreneurs, you want to help them see, and that's what a coach can do that the player can't or the entrepreneur can't, see some aspect of their performance or their behavior or their business that if they change that little thing would have all these other positive downstream effects. Let me give you a concrete example. When um, we teach uh, someone to serve in tennis, it's really important that you toss the ball up in front of you because you're trying to hit the ball forward. And many people will toss the ball behind themselves too far. Now, it does have the advantage of making topspin a bit easier, but let's not go there. At the moment, if I'm watching someone uh, practice their serve, I might just concentrate on where they're tossing the ball up because I know that's a keystone part of that serve. And in your coaching and mentoring as an entrepreneur, I'd be always looking for the keystone habit amongst uh, the people that I'm working with and, and not try to have them think about all the habits they'd like to establish and then how they would do it. Because quite frankly, I think you'd get overwhelmed. Yeah. And that's what I think our, our role is um, in a mentor's because we can stand back a little bit and help make an assessment about, yeah, there's many things you could change, but all things considered, given that you can't change everything at once, what one or two things could you change? Habits take a long time to establish. What is the latest um, research on how long it takes habits to be established in one's life? That's a great question. I do not have a good answer to that question. I've read things like people will say 30 days, and I say that's, I just don't believe it. Um, but I don't know that literature very well. No. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, um, awesome. So thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. I know you do interviews, a lot of interviews. Thank you for giving us your time and uh, sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. And if people, I'm sure people want to find out more about you. So if you guys want to find out more, just go to procrastination.ca and maybe get uh, Tim's book on Amazon, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. So thank you very much, Tim, and um, I'll see you on the internet. Have a, have a very nice day. <laughs> you too. Nice to meet you, Alec. All right. This was our show for today. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast if you like it. I'll see you next time. If you'd like to find out more about me, visit vitkin.net. That's V-I-T-K-I-N.net. Thank you for listening to the show, and see you next time.